This podcast is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Our mission is to accelerate breakthroughs in life-saving cancer research and empower people everywhere to conquer cancer. You can make a gift at conquer.org forward slash podcast. Welcome to Your Stories, a podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I am your host, Brenda Brody. Let's be real. For the average person, science is complicated. Oncology in particular can be especially challenging to make sense of. And yet every day, patients around the world find themselves forced to become overnight oncology scholars as they navigate their own diagnosis and treatment plans, all while trying to come to terms with the life-altering news. It's a lot. As a breast cancer survivor myself, I'm always too aware of how overwhelming this can feel, but I also know firsthand the comfort and the sense of hope that can come when you're surrounded by experts committed to helping you understand and navigate the challenge ahead. Each year during the American Society of Clinical Oncology's annual meeting, ASCO's meeting, which I attended this year, a selection of the year's most promising and notable research is presented during what's called the plenary sessions or the general sessions. It's open to 40,000 attendees. I could not get over the number of folks coming to this conference. It was an extraordinary event, bringing together people from all over the world focused on oncology. And I was really excited to check out the opening plenary session and the ones that followed because four of this year's featured speakers were former Conquer Cancer grant recipients. I want to live in a world and I want my daughter to live in a world where we are all conquering cancer together. For that to happen, we all need a much firmer understanding of what research like we're going to talk about today means and how it applies to our lives and the lives of people we love, which is why today I am honored and really excited for all of us to have Dr. Jyoti Patel. She has more experience than most when it comes to helping those of us without scientific backgrounds to make sense of complicated conditions and treatments. In addition to her work as an oncologist at Northwestern University's Lori Cancer Center, Dr. Patel is the editor-in-chief of Cancer.net, and that's ASCO's patient information website. Today, Dr. Patel is going to walk us through some of the most notable research from this year's ASCO's annual meeting. But more than that, for those of us who aren't trained scientists, she's going to do it in a way that actually makes sense to us and we can understand, including what it means for current and future patients and what it will take to bring this work from the research lab to patients' bedside. Dr. Patel, thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. This is really such a pleasure to get to talk to you about something I'm so passionate about. I believe most people in the cancer community understand that the best cancer care starts with the best cancer information. The problem, whether you're a patient or a loved one or just someone who wants to give and make a difference, is that the best cancer information is often really, really complex. At cancer.net, our goal is to take that information and to parse it down for people in a way that's digestible and that makes sense and gives them information that they can truly act upon. 
We believe that informed patients and families and donors are the best position to heal and to help. And we want to help them make these informed decisions. So at cancer.net, we offer a huge range of resources through our blog, our own podcasts, our in-depth but very lay-friendly online guides about the different types of cancer, how to cope, how to navigate care, to think about life after cancer, and to help people understand research and how they can advocate for the cancer community. We can do great science, but unless we make the message matter, it's irrelevant. I couldn't agree more. I'd also like to go back to something that you just said. Informed patients and donors are the best position to heal and help. Could you share a little bit more about what you meant? Of course. So as you know, there's a wealth of information demonstrating that informed and involved patients are more likely to experience better outcomes. Informed patients are also more likely to be satisfied with their treatment and care because they understand why they're doing it. And in taking that into account and really understanding, again, why they're doing something, it's more likely that they'll have a better outcome. Dr. Patel, ahead of the discussion today, I was looking into some of the research featured in this year's annual meeting. And again, it was just refreshing my mind to what I heard during the plenary sessions. But I still have to say, um, while some of it is clear, I know it's important and I know it holds significant promise for the cancer community, but it's really complex. And quite frankly, I'm not even sure how to pronounce some of the drugs they were talking about, but I know that they target and treat different cancers and they're helping folks live and extend lives. I was hoping you could walk us through, I know there was four in particular that were featured at ASCO's meeting, and I was hoping we could go one by one and you could walk us through what each one of the researchers was sharing. The first one up is Dr. Deborah Schrag. You know, I imagine someone being a marketer or an elementary school teacher, a lawyer, and trying to wrap their head around getting this information a randomized phase three trial of neoadjuvant chemo radiation versus neoadjuvant Fox chemotherapy with selective use of chemo radiation followed by total mesorectal excision, TME, for treatment of locally advanced rectal cancer. Now, that was quite a mouthful and I understood the rectal cancer, but how would you explain this to a patient who wanted to know What's going on in the world of rectal cancer? And how could you explain what it means to them and their care? And how can they bring it up to doctors saying, I don't really understand this. Can you break this down in layman's terms? What questions should they be asking if their doctor isn't giving them everything they need to understand their disease and their treatment protocols? So I'm so excited to talk about this study because this is. Truly, I think, an advancement that impacts so many people. So as you've probably seen, the rates of colorectal cancer have been increasing in our country despite screening. And in particular, they're increasing in younger people. And so we see many patients, unfortunately, in their 40s and their 50s diagnosed with locally advanced rectal cancer. And in this trial, investigators really tried to think about what's the optimal treatment for patients. So patients with rectal cancer that's locally advanced 
unfortunately can't go and undergo surgery right away. We give systemic therapies to reduce the tumor so patients can undergo surgery. And really what this neoadjuvant treatment, so that's the treatment before a surgery, looks like was really the question of this trial. So this was a trial that was done in the United States across many academic and community centers, and they enrolled over 1,100 people in the study. About a third of them were women. The average age, or we call it median in cancer studies, was 57. And patients who agreed to be on this trial after they learned about what our current approach is and why we thought we could do a little bit better were randomized. So that means that after they fulfilled all criteria to be in a study, their information was put into sort of a black box or a computer registration system. And by a flip of the coin, patients could get one treatment, which is the standard treatment or an experimental treatment. So the standard treatment traditionally has been a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. Unfortunately, chemotherapy and radiation can be difficult and can have long-term sequelae. And despite our innovations in radiation therapy, there's still toxicities. So traditionally, what we would do is we treat patients with daily radiation and chemotherapy. We'd shrink the cancer down and then take them to surgery. And we knew most patients were cured with this approach. And so when we're doing a trial like this, we want to see if we can optimize therapy. And sometimes we call it de-escalation, which makes people a little bit nervous because they're like, am I getting less therapy? But when we're doing these, there is no way we're willing to compromise on survival because that's at the most important endpoint to a patient. And so in the de-escalation arm, what investigators were hoping was that the chemotherapy would be effective enough to shrink the cancer so that they could avoid radiation and go from chemotherapy straight into, into surgery. And so the way the trial was designed was that patients got some chemotherapy. After a few weeks, patients were all assessed to see whether they had enough shrinkage. If you had enough shrinkage, you could go straight to surgery after completion of chemotherapy. And if there wasn't enough shrinkage, so if there wasn't at least a 20% reduction, then radiation was added on to the induction surgery, and then you underwent radiation. So in both arms, most patients had complete removal of the tumor. So in people who had, who it was between 97 and 98% of patients were able to have complete resections. And they saw after they took the tumor out that that about 22 to 24% of patients had no evidence of cancer left in what they took out, which is really exciting. What they found, importantly, was that survival was no different between both arms. And why this is so important is that, one, we know that in this cancer that's increasing in young people, we decrease the long-term toxicity of radiation. So that alone is a win. The other thing that's super important is that this is a global cancer. So around the world where access to radiation may not be so easy, we have a good treatment opportunity for these patients. And so again, the global impact of what we do at the American Society of Clinical Oncology cannot be undersold. This has impact to thousands of patients around the world. That is extraordinary. You know, we're constantly as patients talking about how toxic our treatments are. 
and to know that there might be a future where we're not getting as much treatment that's pretty much bedridden. I mean, I was bedridden for seven months. I mean, I was a mess because my chemo was so toxic. So it's really, I'm grateful to hear that we're finding ways to decrease some of the treatment options that are needed. That's terrific news. The next one I would love for you to share with us is about the research that Dr. Roy Herbst presented on lung cancer, which is a brutal cancer. I mean, they're all the cancers are brutal, but I know my father died of lung cancer and it was awful to watch. Can you break down what I heard about Dr. Roy Herbst's study? I'm so sorry to hear your personal experience with lung cancer. I'm a thoracic oncologist and it's really been an exciting two and a half decades of progress in this disease. This particular plenary presentation, I think, highlights the tremendous progress we've made in conquering lung cancer and the impact of really bringing the bench to the bedside, understanding the biologic principles of cancer, and being able to utilize those to really personalize medicine and to think about precision medicine for such a common cancer. So in Dr. Herb's study, he found that a targeted drug called osimertinib helps people live longer after surgery. And so lung cancer is extraordinarily common, unfortunately. And we know patients with early stage disease should undergo surgical resection of their tumors. And in some cases, we recommend chemotherapy to decrease the risk of the cancer coming back. Our more nuanced understanding of lung cancer over the past two decades has shown us that certain patients' tumors harbor particular molecular aberrations or oncogenic drivers that we can target to either treat the cancer in the metastatic setting, and now we're finding that we can target those same oncogenes to improve survival outcomes significantly for patients with early stage disease. The particular mutation that osimertinib targets is a mutation called EGFR mutation, epithelial growth factor receptor. This occurs in about 15% of people in the United States with lung cancer, but almost 80% of women in Asia, for example, with lung cancer. This is not an uncommon type of lung cancer. And again, with a tremendous toll of lung cancer in the United States, this, again, just even the small sort of percentage of people with lung cancer has a huge impact on American health. And so in this study, patients who had early stage lung cancer that was resected, get chemotherapy, and then be tested to see if they had an EGFR mutation in their cancer cells. And if they did, they were enrolled in the clinical trial. And this was an industry-sponsored study that was across the world. And patients, if they had this mutation, could either get three years of osimertinib or three years of placebo. So in total, there were about 700 patients that were divided in these two groups. About two-thirds of the patients in the study were women. About half of them had gotten chemotherapy. Not all patients got chemotherapy after surgery. But what they found in this study was that they confirmed certainly that taking these three years of osimertinib 
decrease the chance of recurrence. But the reason this particular study got a standing ovation was it decreased the risk of dying from the cancer by 50%. So that's just huge. We know that after surgery, you've got a risk for recurrence. But again, taking this medicine for three years had reduced the risk of death by 51%. So certainly very, very impactful. Most of the patients that took this medicine, so it's the pill that you take every day, were able to tolerate it and had only modest side effects. The reason that this is certainly so important is that one, we've shown that we can improve outcomes, but also this is a study that really shows the power of precision medicine. And so we know that patients with lung cancer should have genetic sequencing of their tumors to determine if we can use a biologic agent to decrease their chance of cancer or in the advanced setting to improve outcomes overall. And so this, I think, is is certainly important on many levels. It's really showing how we've gone from something that was so esoteric and difficult 20 years ago, sequencing someone's DNA to now being sort of a level one recommendation that we think should be happening in all clinics around the world. That is so exciting. Before we move on to the next piece of research, I would love to pause for a second to get your take on something. Obviously, cancer.net exists to help people understand complex information like we just discussed. But in general, it feels like there's a real lack of resources still out there. And I know we've come so far with cancer and the support for patients and caregivers and the disease. but helping people understand the complex science and making it into digestible bites, as we were talking about earlier, for those who need to understand it. Why is it that there's still a divide between science and patients? And how can we bridge that in the oncology community? And when I say oncology community, I consider myself part of it now, not only as a patient, but as an advocate. and How can we all, who have a voice in this community, help bridge that divide? Certainly, Brenda, I think you're right on all these fronts. This is really complex stuff. Yes. We're talking about DNA. We're talking about host environments and trying to devise treatment plans. But for the person that has been recently diagnosed with cancer or caring for someone who's been recently diagnosed with cancer, It's like parachuting into land in which you don't know the language, you don't have a map or the topography, and trying to find your way forward. At cancer.net, we've made a significant effort to help patients think about what that navigation needs to look like. And so first, I'd say piece of understanding what diagnosis you have, understanding the cancer you have understanding something as simple as the anatomy. When someone has a cancer, often people will say, well, can't you just cut it out? Well, there may be reasons that we can't. And so that is a huge part of the knowledge gap. And then I think the other piece is that we need to give people the tools to learn what questions to ask. I think when you're first diagnosed, it's just so overwhelming. And to think about, okay, Wait, am I hearing about K2 
curative therapy or palliative care therapy? What is the goal of my treatment? What do I imagine in one year, in five years from the treatment that I'm getting? And then I think all of these questions about, again, living with the cancer. So tolerating toxicities, learning how to ask other people for help, enabling the people that love you to give back to you, understanding how difficult the holidays may be when you're thinking about the trouble, you know, the difficulties that you've had with cancer treatment. That's all stuff that we really try to address on cancer.net. This is truly exciting. I didn't realize how much you all were doing at cancer.net. You really are trying to bridge that gap. And in defense of the oncologist, there's so much when a patient gets to an oncologist that they have to get across all the tests they have to do. They have to save the person's life first. And all the necessary information that's needed for a patient that's been diagnosed or going through it, they can't spend enough time with them to give them all the answers. So I am very encouraged and look forward to people experiencing after hearing you chat today with us about folks that need knowledge, need to know where the resources are to going to cancer.net. Well, let's move on to the next piece of research. I'm hoping, once again, you're doing a great job at explaining this, and I'm understanding much more today than I did at the meeting. Dr. Ingo Mellinghoff's work around grade two gleam, how do you say it? Glioma? Glioma. Ah, which is a type of malignant brain tumor. Could you share more about his research? I'm so happy to. So this is also a really exciting study. So brain tumors are unfortunately not uncommon. And we'll see probably about 25,000 people in the United States who have brain cancers and spinal cord tumors this year. We know that there's a subset of these tumors that are called low-grade gliomas, and you know that these are often more slowly growing and progress over a number of years. Most people with these low-grade gliomas are in the prime of life. They are in their 40s, and the impact of this cancer over years can be devastating. A lot of them have a mutation, 80% of them have a mutation called IDH1. And again, this is that mutation that's in the cancer cells that we get from doing the molecular sequencing I was talking about. And we've sort of known that mutation and have identified it for some time. Current treatment options are pretty intensive for patients with low-grade gliomas. They're often surgery and radiation and even chemotherapy. And as you can imagine, the combination of these can have both short-term, right? You're doing brain surgery and long-term effects. So problems with balance, headaches, and they significantly affect quality of life. So before you'd have this tumor diagnosed, patients would present usually with neurologic symptoms. The tumor would be resected, we'd do radiation, and then we'd just wait, kind of knowing that the cancer would grow again. And so this trial was looking at a new drug, boracidinib, to see if it would impact the length of time until the cancer grew again. That's something that we call progression-free survival. So this study included about 300 people. Patients were as young as 16, like we see with this, and as old as 71. And patients either got this daily oral drug or they got 
a placebo. And really like the goal of the study was to see how long it was before the cancer grew. And they would see that with periodic brain MRIs. And the addition of this oral drug, which was well tolerated, it did have some side effects like fatigue and headache, but generally it was tolerable and few people had to discontinue their medication. The medication improved the time until the cancer grew by an average of 16 months. So, um, you know, over a year difference of not having symptoms from progressive cancer. So certainly this is impactful in a number of ways. One, we know that we can target this mutation. So to again, do the sequencing, look for the biomarker. We know we can do it in a way that delays tumor growth and avoid some of the more toxic therapies like the chemotherapy by vein or additional radiation or additional surgery. And then this is, again, really meaningful to patients. These patients are young, they're working, they're taking care of their families. So this extra time gives them an option to do other things, to get to the work of living their full lives. And this, we hope, is really the first targeted therapy for this patient population. Wow, this is incredible. I really appreciate the way you're breaking this down. And all of these studies are just extraordinary, and there's so much hope around each one of them. Last but not least, I'd love for you to touch on Dr. Alex Herrera's work on advanced stage lymphoma. Can you help us understand what it means and why it matters so much? So this study is really exciting because it was done in a cooperative group. So that meant that it was done at academic and community sites across the country. And it was done in both adults and children over the age of 12 with Hodgkin lymphoma diagnosed with either stage three or four disease. And what they wanted to do was to see whether the addition of an immunotherapy drug, one called nivolum that we use across a lot of different cancers, was better than another immunotherapy drug that we use, brintuximab. And both of those are in combination with chemotherapy. So we think that over 8,800 people in the United States will be diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma. So certainly this is impactful, particularly in a cancer that we really aim to cure despite age, even for the youngest children. So brintuximab is like a targeted therapy and we use it with chemotherapy and we've certainly seen good outcomes, but it can come with pretty significant side effects, especially for children. And then we know that Despite that targeted therapy and the toxicities, the cancer can come back. So we're always looking to improve outcomes. So using nivolumab, which is an immunotherapy, we're hoping that not only do we see a better tolerability profile, but that we build an immune repertoire where we were these immune cells that give us long-lasting immunity to this cancer and surveil over life. And again, for a 12-year-old kid, right, we hope that's decades. And so what researchers did was to take people, again, who'd volunteered to be in, in the trial into two groups. One set of people either got the approved agent, brintuximab and chemotherapy, or the investigational agent, which we knew was nivolumab or chemotherapy. And so they looked at almost a thousand patients and with about 500 patients in each arm. And what they found was that the nivolumab or the immunotherapy 
reduced the risk of death again by over 52%. Most patients again were cured, but that's pretty impactful, decreasing your risk of death by 50%. Now, if you think about some of the treatments that we gave when I started doing my work in, in solid tumors, you know, 25 years ago, we talked about giving chemotherapy to reduce the risk of death by maybe 20%. And so now that we're at 50% and that's sort of what we think our foundational science should get us, it's certainly, certainly exciting. And it means that we can feel good about giving these new therapies and really impacting the outcome for patients and curing more patients. I understand how exciting 50% sounds from a science perspective, but I also understand from a patient perspective, they're saying, what do you mean? It's been 25 years. Why isn't it 90%? Why is it 95%? But I know from everything you all are saying, an extraordinary study and it's a great outcome. Listening to you, I, I was thinking about, we always talk about, at least on my part of the podcast, from the patient perspective, do you have any perspective and thoughts on what the right response for a physician who's dealing with that shell shock patient should be? So I think it's absolutely incumbent upon physicians and nurses and healthcare workers to help patients understand their diagnosis and what they're facing. Everyone comes at a different level of understanding, but we have to meet people where they are. And it may be that it requires a couple of sessions. It may be that we provide written papers. I often do a diagram when I'm talking to patients about what to expect over the next months or years. Certainly cancer.net is something, again, accessible to not only the patient, but their loved ones, you know, and their friends and their support groups that are helping them. But we need to be able to give good information to patients to help them understand, again, the many options that they have. It was different 25 years ago. There was sort of a one-size-fits-all approach. There was one answer. Now, questions about sequencing and therapeutic strategies and focus on patient-reported outcomes, so that means helping patients really be, again, the center of our efforts, has dramatically changed how we approach cancer. There was a time when the stress was, I have very few tools to treat you, and now some of the stresses are, which tool should I use at which particular time to give you the best overall survival but also the best quality of survival. And so those conversations are much more difficult between <laughs> a patient and a physician, I think, than ever before. There's much more prognostic uncertainty because sometimes I see really great results with immunotherapies and it's really hard to predict what will happen. And there's also this very humbling piece is I know what I... No, in 2023 is not going to be what's true in 2026. The pace of progress is dizzying. So it's certainly more complex than it's ever been, but also more satisfying than it's ever been because I have more options. And as a former patient, I hear everything you're saying. And I felt that during my treatment. I felt the empathy and compassion, but also the direct 
information that was being delivered from my oncologist and the team, it was extraordinary. So I can't imagine being on your side, the fact that there are so many options now and making sure that you're treating the whole person while you're trying to make sure that they get what they need and have the right path for the right outcome. So thank you for that. Well, that's a great note to end on. I thank you for being on because you have given so much information, not only about the four extraordinary research studies that I have been curious to learn more about since ASCO, but also about where folks that are listening can help their loved ones and themselves get more information and resources through cancer.net. So I thank you, Dr. Patel, for joining us. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. For doctor-approved patient information, please visit cancer.net, which is supported in part, as you heard today, by Conquer Cancer donors. Conquer Cancer is creating a world where cancer is prevented or cured and every survivor is healthy. Please help us by making a gift at conquer.org forward slash podcast. The participants of this podcast report no conflict of interest relevant to this podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page on conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.